but I, at that point, was just so mad at the school system and mad at my mom and just mad at my life that I was ready to give up. And so I thought the way to build a, a better connection with my uh, friends who were involved in crime to show them that I'm serious, that I'm one of them, that they should sort of welcome me into their lifestyle was to get a gun. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jamil Jamani is a Canadian social entrepreneur and community organiser who asked the question, why is it that young men are so often in the news for the wrong reasons? Jamil's own journey starts in Toronto when he came close to embarking on a life of crime before pulling back from the brink. After studying his law degree and working as a lawyer, he decided to focus on engaging with police and community groups to find better solutions. He also began studying the experience of violent young men around the world. These accounts and his own riveting story are contained in his new book, Why Young Men? The Dangerous Allure of Violent Movements and What We Can Do About It. He also hosts a podcast called The Road Home. I spoke with Jamil on his Australian book tour. Jamil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you grew up in uh, Brampton, Toronto. Tell us uh, what, the, what that uh, suburb is like. Yeah, it was a interesting time uh, growing up because we were the first sort of wave of people to urbanize that that suburb. And, and I always say, you know, the kids there were older than the houses they lived in. So um, most of us... <laughs> Yeah, most of us were either brand new to Canada or our parents were. Um, my mother was one of the only white Canadians uh, who lived in the community. So um, I was you know, fortunate to learn from both um, a Canadian perspective and also my father being from Kenya, uh, an immigrant's perspective, and um, see you know, the challenges that, that come you know, living both of those um, uh, those paths, so to speak. And we were, we were a lot of young people trying to find an identity. I mean, most of my neighbors came from the Caribbean or from India and were trying to figure out what did it mean to be a Canadian who looked different from the sort of stereotypical image of a Canadian. We were mostly from uh, black and brown sort of racial and ethnic backgrounds and um, it was an interesting sort of entrepreneurial exercise, I think, for a lot of these families to not only relocate, but also try to figure out uh, from a cultural perspective, what, how do you bring the traditions of where you come from to a new place and mesh those with the traditions of a new environment. So there was um, a lot of change going on around us, and that meant that we were also having a pretty wide range of different life outcomes. You know, some of us were adjusting really well and, you know, performed well in school and had a good relationship with adults in our lives. Um, some and others of us, you know, didn't have those things and struggles quite a bit. And I was, you know, one of the young men who struggled and, um, you know, certainly a lot of what I write about in the book and, you know, what I talk about in, in my, um, 
my life is about, you know, what I learned from those experiences and how fortunate I was to sort of bounce back from some of those early challenges in my life. Uh, another famous person with a uh, Kenyan father and uh, an Anglo mother is, of course, Barack Obama, uh, who growing up in the United States, I think, found himself, his, his identity uh, slotting most neatly into uh, the African-American community. Uh, but my guess is that in Canada, it's a little bit more complicated than that, that, that like Australia, Canada has a sort of more, di more diverse racial politics. Uh, did, you, did, you think, did, did you think of yourself in, in kind of straightforward terms as being black in some sense, or, uh, or, or, or was it more complicated? Yeah, so I, I think you're right that, you know, Canada does have a more complex sort of racial and identity, um, you know, sort of political... Uh, landscape, but for for Black Canadians, I think our proximity to the United States means we're sort of we're, we're to some extent we're kind of swallowed up by the monolith, and so like all of the news media that we consume, the pop culture, movies, music, etc., the sports that we watch. It, all of that is American. And so as a black person in Canada growing up, especially because I didn't have my father around for most of my childhood and there weren't very many sort of local traditions where we would say, oh, like this is um, a place we could go to get our identity sort of taught to us and to learn how learn what our sort of cultural traditions look like we wound up turning to music and movies and american entertainment to fill that void so i did absolutely see myself uh, as a black person from as early as i can recall in part because i identified with um you know black entertainers and black historical figures and and black american culture was an incredibly important part of my uh, you know, coming of age. So in, in, a, in, in that sense, I think black people in Canada are uniquely Americanized in a way that a lot of other minority groups are not. And rap music was a big part of this for you, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, you know, a lot of young people love rap music. It's, it's one of the most popular genres of music around the world. But what's an important distinction I try to help people understand is that, you know, for some young people, rappers are just entertainers, they're artists, they're people who make music that you can dance to or bob your head to while you're driving. Um, but for myself and my peer group, rappers meant way more than I think we would like for them to mean in the lives of any young person. They were like philosophers and clerics, people who we look to for wisdom and guidance on how to live our lives. They were cultural leaders and, um, you know, which is a tragic situation in part because as young men, many of whom were lacking fathers, we were finding these role models in hip hop, but yet those role models we were finding were also misguided young men who didn't have fathers and, and role models in their own right. So it was a, it's a case of the blind leading the blind, so to speak. And that's, that's sort of the danger of when pop culture means is becomes more than just entertainment and it becomes maybe your entire worldview. So you end up putting, uh, the, the, the main artists onto on, onto a pedestal rather than simply seeing them as uh, as, as creating great music, but uh, but not being mentors. Exactly, and I know you know when I when I talk about this, people often cite examples like you know the rapper Jay Z, and they say, well, you know he's he's a billionaire, and you know he's married to Beyonce, and they've got kids, and and they'll say, well, so, you know, so maybe you can get good role models out of hip hop, and I think that there is some merit to that point. 
But what I always try to get people to remember is that hip hop is a, and all pop culture, not just hip hop, but but in my case, hip hop was had a unique place. It's it's a it's a it's a world where you know morality takes what I think is a pretty embarrassing turn. Where, for instance, Jay Z, who is a forty nine year old billionaire right now. You know, earlier this year, he made a song where he was rapping about how he used to sell drugs and he never had to pay the consequences and doesn't feel bad about it. And you wonder, like, well, where else in our society could a billionaire talk like that and not feel embarrassed, right? Like if Bill Gates or Warren Buffett went on television and said, you know, I used to do a lot of criminal activity and I never got caught and, you know, you know, good for me. Like people would be kind of shocked mm -hmm. by that. And mm -hmm. yet in hip hop, you can do that as a grown man who is very rich and very powerful and no one sort of bats an eye. And that's, that's the danger of entertainment. It's like, you know, Jay-Z's primary objective is to make money. He was not trying to be my father figure. He was not trying to be a surrogate for my dad. And yet that's what I sort of turned him into because I didn't have better options around me. Uh, and your, your father, uh, Ismat, uh, you talk about as, uh, as living a life of emotional suppression and uh, uh, not, not, not knowing exactly what it was to be a dad. Um, how did things end with your parents there? Yeah, well, we had, um, like I think a lot of families, you know, there was no real dramatic sort of precise ending. It was a sort of this gradual shift of him slowly disappearing from my life over a long period of time until I was a teenager and sort of realized, actually, he's just not around anymore. Like, I, you know, it sort of dawns on, on you that you haven't seen him in, in years. Um, and at this point, I haven't, you know, talked to him in, in well over a decade. So, um, you know, he wound up disappearing in part. I, you know, he's this tragic story of, you know, uh, a young man who was born an orphan, worked really hard, um, was re-orphaned at 14, but put himself in cooking school and got an internship at the Hilton Hotel and, you know, made something of himself and, and got himself from, you know, Nairobi all the way to London, then to Toronto. And, and but, you know, because he didn't have that family support and, and he was not a healthy man emotionally, didn't learn how to be uh, intimate with um, a, a wife or to be caring to children, I think he just sort of cracked under the pressure of trying to be something he wasn't prepared for. And by the time he cracked under that pressure, he sort of gave up on us and left. So that's uh, that kind of rejection of, you know, a parent leaving you, which unfortunately way too many young men experience um, in, you know, modern Western society. We are, we are seeing, you know, broken households, left and right. And uh, I think it's one of the issues that most affects um, the Western world right now, from Australia to Germany to Canada to the United States. And yet we don't talk about it very much. And I think um, under underlying every major social issue that people are concerned about, there is what I call in the book, a fatherhood factor. There's a there's a role that you know, family and, and, and either a healthy family or an unhealthy family can play in putting kids on the right path or the wrong path. And, uh, you know, my father experienced that and sort of handed down that same challenge to me by not being in my life. And hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll break that generational curse, but it's certainly something that um, a lot of us are wrestling with. 
you also uh, suffered uh, racism growing up. Uh, you tell a, a particular story about uh, when you were eight and uh, your father was dri driving the car. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, it was one of the most vivid memories I have of my dad, actually, because, you know, we were not the, the five of us, my parents, myself, and my two younger sisters, we were very rarely all together. And uh, the night that um, we had that encounter with the cops was one of those times we were all together. So I remember it really clearly because he we got into a minor car accident and the police showed up and they wound up, you know, screaming at my father and, and, and denigrating him and making him sit on the side of the street and treating him like he was a criminal for what was a, you know, a really minor car accident. And uh, it, it, it just etched a certain sort of image of police and authority in my mind that would sort of haunt me for the rest of my childhood, where I also had negative interactions with police and, and shared in that same anxiety every time a uniformed officer or even a security guard was around me. Um, and, you know, I, I always think about that because I also, I can only imagine, you know, I wish I could ask my father, you know, what, what his sort of feelings from that were. Um, but it definitely was a, was a, was a pivotal sort of point in my childhood because it introduced the idea of race and discrimination to me and also made me sort of see it as something that was normal. And I think that's, that's the part where it becomes really scary. Um, you know, when we think about what the world we want our young people to grow up in, um, we certainly, I think no one wants them to grow up in a world where they think that being discriminated against or treated unfairly is uh, something that should be expected. Uh, and yet that's sort of what was stuck in my mind. Like I thought, you know, when people might be afraid of you or treat you like you're a criminal or that you're dangerous as a black man, I thought, well, maybe that's sort of the coming of age. Like that's sort of a rite of passage of growing up into adulthood. Um, and, and that is a really, you know, I think a really sad reality that a lot of young people who grow up seeing, um, you know, police harassment or discrimination and how law enforcement operates, they start to see it as like a normal part of life. And the relationship that cultivates between you and your country is really negative because mm. you wind up mm. sort of thinking, well, you know, am I welcome here? Do people want me to feel like a patriot to love my nation when the folks who we pay in, with our tax dollars to keep our community safe don't seem to think that I am a safe member of this community, even if I haven't done anything wrong. So yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it, that was, that was a really important part of my childhood. And it's something that I, I often return to and I'm trying to um, build a uh, rapport with young men because I know how common that experience is. And I know how many of them want to be understood as something more complicated and nuanced than dangerous and yet many yes. of us are stereotyped that way and it must have been not only scary for you but also deeply emasculating for your dad to to have all of that happen in front of his family yeah yeah i i, I assume so like I, I mean as i said i like i wish i could ask him there's a lot of things i wish i could you know talk to him about and that's one of them because i i can only imagine what that does to someone, you know, you think about your, you know, your dad, you know, you think about your parents and you say, well, these are sort of ultimate authority figures in your life. And when you see someone you look up to as an authority figure sort of demeaned by another authority figure, it, it, it's a jarring experience. And, um, yeah, I, I, I can only imagine what that would have been like for him.
When you were in grade 10, you were judged illiterate according to, uh, to, to a literacy test. Um, what did that do to you and, and, what, and your aspirations for what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, we have this uh, really terrible sort of policy um, in parts of Canada, which uh, I'm not sure if they exist everywhere, but um, we, we, we do these provincial exams that are considered a literacy test to measure your reading and writing ability. Um, and, you know, the, the, the bad policy we have is that if you fail them like I did, you are made to return back to school the following year as a, you know, with, with the, with the other grade 10 students when you are now a grade 11. And so it sort of, um, advertises to everyone that you failed because you are being grouped with a grade lower than you. And that was a really difficult thing for me to experience. You know, I, I wasn't illiterate. I mean, I had, um, some degree of academic ability, which I would go on to show later in my life. But at the time, all of that potential was buried under a sort of pessimism and anger that existed inside of me. And so I never tried in school, uh, didn't give it a bit of effort, never even went to class if I could help it. And that meant that when I was writing this test, it was, it was a reflection of my effort more than it was my ability. And I didn't care about it when I first failed, but when I went back the following year and, and sort of my failure became a public humiliation, that's what really, you know, ticked me off and sent me further away from school. I, uh, I felt so frustrated that, um, I, uh, you know, was close to giving up and dropping out. And you know, thankfully, my mother sort of fought with me and argued with me enough that dropping out wasn't really possible uh, without, you know, um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, having to leave her house. So, um, yes. so yeah, so, so I was able to sort of get get on track uh, later on. But that was a really rough period of my life where I sort of had this idea of like, okay, well, you know, the school system is disrespecting me. Well, I'll disrespect you right back. And, and it, you know, I almost, you know, sort of cost myself an education because of that. And what did you think you were going to be when you, uh, at this stage in your life? Oh, I had very, um, very uh, negative outlook. So I just, you know, I didn't think I was going to be able to get an education or a job. I thought that the world was designed for me and people like me to, to, to not succeed. And I had resigned myself to failure. So I thought, you know, criminality was going to be my, my lane. Uh, it, 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 it's sort of weird, I guess, use this language now, but when I look back, it, it definitely felt like pursuing just a different career path. Um, it was just a matter of saying, okay, well, this isn't going to work out this whole school job, normal lifestyle is not for me. So let me look elsewhere. And I was in an environment where a lot of my closest friends were in and out of jail. They were involved in a you know number of different criminal activities. And so I, it felt easy for me to be like, okay, well maybe I should just sort of follow them and go in that direction. And that's what I thought my future was going to be like. And tell us about the moment when you considered getting a gun. Yeah, well, that was, um, it's a, 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 an important sort of transition period in my life and a, a fork in the road um, in front of me. We, um, you know, if you sort of putting it in context, I write that literacy test in grade 11 and I passed it, you know, thankfully. 
but I, at that point, was just so mad at the school system and mad at my mom and just mad at my life that I was ready to give up. And so I thought the way to build a, a better connection with my uh, friends who were involved in crime to show them that I'm serious, that I'm one of them, that they should sort of welcome me into their lifestyle was to get a gun. And I thought it would really show people that I wasn't just um, talking. I meant it. Like, I really want to be this gangster tough guy that I was telling, you know, telling people I was and sort of live up to the bluster. Um, yeah. And this would be a gun that you'd carry through. and that would be part of your, uh, your identity there? Yeah, exactly. That you know that. So I, I had I had a friend who I knew would have would be able to get me a gun, and I asked him to locate one for me, and he did. And uh, I didn't have the cash on me at the time, so the plan was to go home, get the money, and then buy it the next day. And 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 I thought it was going to feel like this triumphant moment where I was like, finally, I get this gun. And um, instead, it wound up being pretty emotionally devastating. Like I was so scared and and. Um, sort of paralyzed that night. I remember crying and not really being sure why I was crying, but just feeling really bad inside. And, you know, when I wrote the book, I had a chance to look back and think, well, why did I cry? And why did I decide not to buy the gun the next day? And I thought about it, you know, I think what was happening in my life were two things. One is that I knew that owning a gun was a slippery slope. You know, once you once you buy a gun, you have problems with people who have guns, you carry a gun around just to feel safe. And, and you get caught with that gun and, and, and your life just gets ruined. I've seen that happen to other people and I didn't want to have that happen to me. But the other thing that was going on, I think, was, you know, I knew if my mom found out I had a gun, she would, you know, kick me out of her house. Um, and, and, and she was the only person who ever believed in me. Like when I was talking about dropping out of school, she was the only person who would fight with me and say, no, Jimmy, you have to graduate. And she believed in me even when I didn't believe in myself. And she gave me someone to disappoint, you know, and the idea that I would disappoint her, that I would sort of potentially lose her faith, that really scared me too. So yeah, I didn't buy that gun. And, you know, I thank God for it every day since, because I think if I did, it, it could have changed uh, my life outcome pretty significantly. Jamil, you then go through a remarkable turnaround of, uh, of your, your own circumstances, uh, attending Humber College and York University before going to Yale, uh, possibly the most prestigious law school in the world. Tell us the story of, of how you ended up uh, going to Yale and, and, uh, and, and why you were encouraged to apply. Yeah, well, the, 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 the turnaround I went through was... Um, was really abrupt uh, and I didn't think about it much until I wrote the book because it just moved so fast. When I got out of high school, I went into community college and I hit the ground running. And you know, what I, what I remind a lot of young men about is that sometimes it's just a matter of changing your scenery, changing your environment, changing who your friends are can really bring out a different side of you that you didn't know existed. And that's what was happening to me. So I went to college, I made new friends, I had different mentors and, and things changed really quickly. Uh, the same happened uh, when I went on to university after that. And, um, you know, but, but even though I was starting to do well academically, I still had a pretty limited sense of what was possible for me. Like I was, I felt like I was living on the edge in the sense that I had, you know, 12 years of evidence that I was a bad student and like three, four years of evidence that I could be a good student. 
And sometimes it felt like, well, are you betting on those three good years? Like, how do you know it's not going to go back to what it used to be like? So I was pretty limit, like low in my ambition. And I wound up um, at a university conference presenting one of the papers I wrote about black history in Canada. And uh, there was a Yale University history professor who was there. And, you know, by God's grace, he wound up at the event before uh, he was speaking. So he got there early and he heard my presentation and he came up to me after and he said, oh, that was really good. Like, what are you doing after you graduate? And I said, oh, you know, I was thinking about going to law school. I had written the the test to uh, get into law school, but, um, you know, wasn't completely sure. And he's like, well, have you ever thought about applying to Yale? And I was like, no, I hadn't. I mean, honestly, I'd only heard of Yale on like Saved by the Bell and, you know, TV shows like that. And so <laughs> I was sort of like uh, surprised he even mentioned it. And he said, you know, I, um, he asked me what my grades were. And I told him, he said, you know, you're talented. You have good grades. I think you should apply. You, you have a chance. And I thought he was like a superhero. Like I never met someone who taught at a fancy university before. So his encouragement to apply meant a lot because I figured, you know, he, he can't be stupid. So if he thinks I could get in, then I better give this a try. Um, and he's, and, and that sort of chance encounter was the reason I decided to apply in the first place and, and got in and was blessed with the financial support and scholarships I needed in order to attend as a student from a low income background. So, um, yeah, you know, and, and, and I, and I, 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 I'm glad you asked me about that story because it sort of highlights to some degree the, the chance and circumstance that's involved in how our lives turn out the way they do. I mean, just as I had this sort of moment of, of, uh, you know, moral clarity where I decided to not buy that gun, um, which on another day, maybe I wouldn't have had that clarity in it. And, and if I were in a different mm, mood, maybe mm. I would have buy that, bought that gun. The same sort of applies to, going to Yale Law School. I mean, um, if, if he was an hour later showing up to that conference, he never hears me speak. And then he never encourages me to apply. And I might have gone to whatever the closest law school was to my mom's house instead of going somewhere that wound up changing the trajectory of my career. So yeah, it's a, you know, every time I get a chance to talk about these moments, it certainly makes me grateful for, for how things have played out. Yeah, I mean, there's chance in it, but there's also the willingness of that professor to take the time to invest in you. Uh, I mean, I think about that conversation you had in the first episode of your Road Home podcast with uh, one of your mentors, the footballer Michael Clemens. And he was talking about that uh, cliched African uh, uh, phrase that it takes a village to raise, raise a child. But he was emphasising the notion that many of us in the village now are failing our children. Uh, and failing to take the time to reach out to children uh, who aren't our, our biological kids, uh, but to provide that sort of mentoring role. Uh, do you think about doing that consciously in, in, in your own life? Do you think about trying to find moments where you can, you can do for another young person what that uh, uh, history professor did for you? Absolutely. And I think you've picked up exactly on the thing. I mean, we all have the power to encourage one another and to offer some positive words here and there. That professor, I had a five minute conversation with him and I've never seen him again uh, since. 
and yet he had that big of an impact on my life. And I have the privilege, as I'm sure you do with your work, of meeting hundreds and thousands of people a year. And so I do have the opportunity to, you know, I might not be able to, you know, mentor a young man, you know, for an hour a week, every week, as I wish I could. But even if it's just five minutes, I have that interaction. I want to use that five minutes to be as encouraging as I possibly can be. And that is, you know, one of the takeaways, I think, from my story is that 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 brief interaction you have with people can mean a lot because sometimes we forget how few words of positivity a lot of young people hear, especially boys, because I think a lot of boys, we we live in a sort of political time where it's common to say things like, you know, the future is female or that there's such a thing as male privilege and, and toxic masculinity. And we we use this language that I that I think conditions us to assume that a lot of boys are being raised in an environment where they're being told you could be anything and you're smart and you're amazing. The reality is that many are not. And many of them have very low self-esteem like I did growing up. They don't know what they're capable of. They don't have a positive identity. And any adult, myself included, who can meet that young man and say, you know what, you can do things and you are greater than you know you are. And there's a brighter future for you if you're willing to put the work in. That, that is an enormously valuable contribution to make into a young person's life. Yes, and it's certainly true that uh, boys are the majority of uh, school suspensions or suicides uh, and that they're more, more likely to be the victor, victim of violence. Uh, you, when, you, when you got to Yale, you uh, observed its diversity in a couple of different dimensions. Uh, talk to us about your sense as to, as to where Yale was diverse and, and where it wasn't. Well, I had this, I guess, image of Yale going in that it was going to be um, like a country club, right? Like a lot of rich people, a lot of people from uh, wealthy backgrounds, a lot of uh, white people. And, um, you know, some of that wound up being true. Like, I mean, there are way more wealthy people there than there are in virtually any other institution that you would be part of. Um uh, but it is a lot more sort of racially and culturally diverse than uh, people might expect from the outside, which is a good thing. Um, uh, however, the, 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 the new kind of diversity that does not exist there that I was especially sensitive to was a diversity of, um, you know, life experience, especially as it pertains to education. There, you know, when you grow up being told that you failed this class, you failed that class, you're not good at math, you're not good at English, you got to go to summer school. It gives you a certain orientation to the world where you're like, I'm actually more comfortable not fitting in than I am actually fitting in. I'm, I, I'm not, my life didn't set me up to feel like I belonged in a place like Yale. Whereas everyone I was meeting when I was there, and I'm generalizing, of course, because it's not literally everyone, but the vast majority had never experienced that. They don't know what it's like to fail in school. They don't know what it's like to be told that you're illiterate. They don't know what it's like to, 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 to have to find self-confidence outside of what your teacher says to you because your teacher is not saying good things to you. And that's a different mentality where you have at elite institutions like Yale people who are chasing the affirmation and validation of the of the institution. They want the professors to like them. They want the job opportunity. They want to be told how great they are. And I went in being like, 
well, I it would be nice if people <laughs> said good things about me, but I'm you know I don't count on it because I know that that's actually a, a privilege to to walk around and people tell you that you're smart, um, and that was intimidating to me to think that you know the, that I was learning alongside the sort of the heirs to the American you know, elite class, the people who are going to be future senators and judges and corporate law partners and things like that. Whereas I had not thought of myself as being equal to people like that before. So it was a culture shock for sure. And I find it interesting that uh, one of your best mates in law school end up being J.D. Vance, whose uh, book Hillbilly Elegy many uh, listeners will have uh, will have read. Uh, that uh, that you uh, you gravi- gravitated towards uh, a white hillbilly whose uh, whose whose educational background was uh, was perhaps similar to yours, even if his uh, racial and ethnic background wasn't. Yeah, and that that's that's the thing. I mean, if you told me like <laughs> before I went to Yale that I my best friend from law school was going to be a self-described hillbilly, <laughs> I I would have I would have laughed in your face, but <laughs> that that definitely was the case. I mean, we bonded over what I what I, you know, often call a, a mutual discomfort. Like neither of us really fit in um or at least we didn't think we fit in at Yale and we sort of came to each other's aid in, in, in supporting one another through that process. And, you know, we've, we've still, um, you know, since graduating, we still sort of play a similar role, I think, in each other's life because every experience we have, um, you know, as we grow older and our careers progress and we get new mentors and new friends and new opportunities, um, it's all still new to us. I mean, we're, we're sort of still, to some degree, stumbling around in the dark, trying to figure things out. And it's nice to have other people around you who are going through that same process. And what's interesting about uh, your book, and indeed Jetty Vance's, is uh, the uh, focus on individual agency, on, on uh, I guess, what uh, we might call character in an old-fashioned sense. And I think there's there's a real tension here, and you see it in the political conversation between left and right. Uh, there's the the folks uh, uh, to characterise the views on the extreme left who say it's all about the system, and on the extreme right who say it's it's all about individual action. Uh, you seem to be walking somewhere in, bet- in between, and in, in sort of the space that uh, uh, perhaps uh, Jonathan Haidt occupies, uh, of saying that systematic racism matters, but that uh, it shouldn't allow us to ignore the role of, of individuals in that. Tell us more about your views on, on those issues, and particularly how you communicate them to uh, young men who have been the victim of systemic racism. Yeah, well, my, my, my message to young men is, is certainly not as nuanced uh, as it would be from sort of, let's say, if I were writing an academic paper, because I think it's important that young men, you know, hold themselves to a very high standard and that the adults around them have high expectations of them. So, you know, life might be unfair. You might not have the home life you wish you had. You might not go to a school that is supporting you the way they should be. But that does not mean you get to sort of devolve your your moral agency and become a violent, resentful, negative force in your community. And that's the, the distinction that I think is really important to make. Like, I... I believe that my job as an adult now 
um, you know, just as I, I imagine you believe yours is as not only adult, but also a, a, a politician and a, and a public leader is that, you know, we have to create conditions that are going to allow as many of our young people to succeed and have a healthy life as possible. And I take that responsibility very seriously, which is partly why I do the activism that I do. But to young men, I say, well, even if I fail, that doesn't mean you get to become a worse person. And that's a really important element of the individual agency personal responsibility ethos is that your circumstances should not drag you down. It, 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 it's not a matter of turning a blind eye to the unfairness and inequality in the world because that is absolutely something we need to be mindful of. We need to study it. We need to understand it. We need to conquer it as best as we can. But we also need to send a message to our young men that that's not a reason why you get to hurt yourself or other people. And that's something I wish was more clearly articulated to me when I was growing up because I was living in this sort of toxic uh, space of moral relativism where I said, well, people are unfair to me. I don't have any money. I don't have my dad. The cops are mean to me. That must mean that it's okay for me to buy a gun or it's okay for me to get into fights and get suspended and take my anger out on other people and be mean and rude and unethical in many ways. And I, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have learned from that and changed, but I would not have made those changes if I didn't have new mentors enter my life and say to me, you could be more than you think and people need to be delivering that message because that raises the the agency in you i think to to transcend your circumstances so um so that's the balance that i that i try my best to strike and i think you're absolutely right when you say that there's a tension in that because it is such a key function of our politics it's the culture wars that go on across the western world right now are in many ways based around that question as well and um, I do think that, you know, from my perspective, in the areas of life that work with young people, so we're talking about schools, we're talking about, um, you know, youth programs, charities, um, uh, faith networks, I think sometimes right now in this moment in history, I think we're erring too much on the side of de-emphasizing personal responsibility. And it's easy to be a young man growing up in the West right now where all the all the, the messaging you receive is telling you about how life is unfair and, um, you know, there's, there's racism against you, there's poverty against you, there's not enough jobs and the climate is changing and all this like sort of negative messaging about what the future looks like. And that I think sends a message of, oh, I guess, well, I should maybe not try to be the best that I can be because life isn't going to work for me. Um, so I try my best to balance that out, but it is often very based on context because there are times I go into a community mm, where mm. young men are being told that there's no such thing as systemic disadvantages or there's no such thing as you know poverty holding people back or the relationship that history has with the present and in those cases people need to be told actually you know personal responsibility is important but it's not everything because if you think it's the only thing that determines success, you're not going to be as empathetic with people who are struggling as you need to be. So it is a matter of balance, and, and the balance is always, I think, circumstantial. Uh, and it's uh, you're speaking from position of somebody who has worked on those systemic issues. I mean, you've worked on police community relations uh, in uh, not only Toronto but also in Milwaukee. So you know you're you're very very much coming from a stance of somebody who uh, who understands the system but uh, wants individuals to be as as strong as they can within it. 
Yeah, exactly. I I think you know one of one of my fears about the, when we t- talk about the system too much is also that it starts to sort of depersonalize what I think are really important moral questions, right? So I've mm. seen many examples um, where you know we're talking about sort of systems creating inequalities or systems discriminating against people or systems being biased against uh, women or minorities or um, you know some some group in society. And, and I think too often that means, okay, well then who's, who's responsible for that then, right? Like who's the actual person who's making a decision that's harming somebody else? And if you think about it in the context of education, for instance, I see in many cases this sort of systemic racism narrative being used to explain why some students fail or why some school districts um, suffer relative to others. And then there not being any sort of teacher accountability in that or principal accountability or people saying, hey, like maybe if all these kids who live in this neighborhood are struggling to read and write at grade level, then we need to have somebody should maybe lose their job because of that or someone should be asked to do their job differently at least. And because when you make it about the system, then there's actually no one who's at fault. And I think that's a a key, like, you know, part of my reservation of, overemphasizing systems is that it sort of reduces everything into a vague, um, you know, unidentifiable sort of decision-making process as opposed to saying there are actual specific people that could be affecting the world in a more positive way. One of the things that's striking to me about your book is uh, the degree to which you look at uh, dysfunctional masculinity as being a feature of a whole lot of extremist movements, including the alt-right, uh, with its uh, sort of odd lexicon of cucks and incels and so on. Uh, what, tell us a little bit about how you think um, toxic masculinity has led to, uh, to, to the rise of some of those uh, white supremacist movements. Yeah, well, I think, you know, toxic masculinity is one of those terms that gets used in a lot of different ways. And when I, in in the cases where I have used it, I've tried to really focus on the ways that there are people who want to teach our boys harmful and negative um, uh, understandings of, of manhood. And they want to sort of bundle the male identity with what I would consider sort of poisonous elements of domination, of hatred, of resentment toward other people. And that's what a lot of these violent movements, whether it's the alt-right and white nationalists or it's jihadists um, or in many cases also street gangs and criminal organizations, they're presenting a version of manhood to our boys and our young men that is particularly violent, it's divisive, and it's cultivates this sort of um, feeling of conflict of dramatic civilizational uh, epic uh, uh, you know dynamic violence between a small minority of men who are quote unquote you know brave enough to stand for what is right um, and then the rest of the world that you know is 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 has been taken over by some sort of competing ideology that can only be resolved through violence. And that, that is the kind of masculinity that I think a lot of um, these the um, uh, violent movements, these terrorist organizations, these extremist networks, this is what they're trying to sort of teach boys. So in the, in the context of the mm. alt-right, they're saying to a, a lot of disenfranchised, alienated, 
in some cases, uh, um, mentally unwell young men. And they're saying to them, you know, your, your, your way of life is under attack. Your country has been overtaken by people who want to give benefits and power and resources to others. And the way for you to re resist that is to be part of this sort of vanguard that will stand on the front lines and fight for your race. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredibly um, uh, captivating way of thinking about the world uh, for a bored young man who thinks of himself as being irrelevant and his life means nothing. And, you know, what, what, what significance do I have? I, I'm not good at school. I have no friends. I don't have a girlfriend, right? Who's a young man who's, who's feels depressed and alone. And all of a sudden you have some group on the internet telling you that you can be part of a group that's going to uh, shape the future of our species and our, our civilization. Uh, it's a, it, 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 that's the value proposition. And I think that when we're trying to balance that out, whether we're talking to young white men or young Muslim men or anyone in society where we're seeing that sort of divisive, hateful message building an audience, a key part of balancing that out is going to be saying, well, can I invest meaning into this young man's life that competes with the narrative that he's being told by these extremists? Because they're coming with an exciting Hollywood-esque you know, clash of civilizations that they're offering this young man to participate in. And the reality is that, you know, sometimes it's not enough to balance that out with just saying, no, why don't you go to school and get a job? You've got to invest some meaning into a young man's life. And it's a hard thing to do, but, it, you know, the best youth workers, the best teachers, the best parents, the best mentors are people who understand how to bring that significance to a young man's life. In the theme of bringing significance to a young man's life, uh, one of my favourite tales that you tell was about uh, Hamza, the uh, Belgian man who'd uh, just gotten out of jail. Uh, tell us that tale. Yeah, well, I had met him in a, um, a you know a place I did not expect to see him. So I was uh, visiting this uh, youth program in Brussels, and um, you know they have a bunch of different programs they offer to help young people prepare for jobs. I went to visit the housekeeping class and uh, it was uh, out of, you know, dozens of students in the program, there were um, only, there's only one man. And uh, it struck me as very interesting because, you know, that is a, a job that we have, you know, in our society stereotypically associated with, with women and women are the majority of people who work in that industry. Mm. Um so, you know, I, the fact that there was a one, there was one man in that class stood out to me and I was curious. So I, I wanted to go and chat with him and he actually had just come out of prison, which made it even more sort of startling that he would be in a housekeeping class because I expected him to be this, you know, very sort of macho guy who would have thought that housekeeping was not a manly enough job for him. But as I got to know him and he explained to me that, you know, he had a daughter right before he was incarcerated and, uh, you know, he spent his entire time in prison thinking about her. And when he came out, his only goal was to provide for that daughter and for and for the, his for his daughter's mom. And uh, the the one program he could get into was this housekeeping program. And he said to me, you know, if this is what I have to do in order to make money for my family, then I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let the fact that, you know, I'm a man and, and everyone else here is a woman 
um, scare me away from doing this job. And it just, it struck me as being incredibly powerful because he was in this situation, you know, and I'm, you know, certainly when I was his age, I would not have been open-minded to, you know, working as a housekeeper. I was limited by that same mentality of, well, these are, some jobs are women's jobs and some jobs are men's jobs. And he just broke through that whole dichotomy by saying, there's actually something more important than my ego and, you know, my feelings. There's, there's a role I need to play in my family's life. And that is actually, to me, what masculinity in its, in its best form looks like. It's, it's about saying, like, I'm responsible for other people, whether that means I'm a dad or a son or a brother, a friend, I'm, I have a role to play. I want to own my responsibility. I want to contribute to my family and to my community. And I'm going to do what it takes to be a good example for what they should learn from and they should follow. And yeah, so Hamza was just this powerful moment for me that I, I think about him a lot at, when people say things like, you know, toxic masculinity, for example, I always remind them, well, you know, be careful when we use that language because sometimes it will be seen as saying masculinity is toxic. And Hems is an example of that not being the case at all. I and mean, he mm. is a very masculine man and he holds his role as a father in the highest regard, which is the most masculine thing that I think you could do is, is be a father and play that role in someone's life. And he does that while cleaning hotel rooms, right? And And the fact that like he can do both of those things is that is what I think the kind of masculinity we want our boys to grow up with. Absolutely. Uh, Jamil, just as you're about to launch the, this book, you uh, d- got a, a sudden uh, ca- cancer diagnosis um, and that led to treatment and then to delays and then to what you've called Book Launch 2.0. How did Book Launch 2.0 differ from the way in which you originally envisaged launching this book on the world? Yeah, well, so I um, I definitely would say that I have a far greater appreciation for the very small number of things that matter to you when you're, you know, facing death in the face. Like I, I've been fortunate to accomplish a lot of things, um, you know, by the age of 31. And I'm, you know, really grateful for the career that I've had and, and the, the twists and turns that my life has has taken. Um, but you know, when I was facing death and I had stage four cancer and it was a real possibility that I was going to die and if not die, a possibility that I was going to become paralyzed. Um, I was, you know, there were very small number of things that mattered to me and, and, and they were the things that, you know, were about what's my relationship like with my mom? Um, have I, have I been good to people who care about me? have I left something behind that would help people sort of take on the wisdom to whatever extent I've gathered wisdom in my time so far and then build on that and reach heights that I can't even imagine. Um, Those are the things that I was thinking about when I was in the hospital. And so the book is such a key part of that for me. Like I, I got to a point where I was really comfortable, um, saying, okay, if this is it, like if I, if I did not get to see 2019, I was comfortable saying that it would, like this book would have at least captured what I had learned up to this point um, well enough that I could leave sort of with some satisfaction. And so now that, you know, I'm healthy and the book is out, I now get to sort of approach the launch of the book 
with that perspective of saying, you know, look, if I sell a bunch of books, that's great. If it's a, if it's a bestseller and people love it, that's great. But the fact that, you know, this story I've already, you know, had hundreds of young people reach out to me and say, you know, I had a moment like you had when I almost bought a gun or I'm scared that, that I'm going to turn to crime because I don't know if I'm going to ever be good at school either or yes. I don't have my dad and I'm not sure what to do about that. Like those are the things that sort of stick with me and where I get the value from. And I'm not sure I would have had that perspective if I had not been sick. So I, I'm grateful for that. Sounds like your focus is much more on non-readers than readers these days. Yeah, I mean, certainly, <laughs> you know, non-readers don't buy books. So I have to spend my time with, uh, with a lot of readers. But I try my best to sort of take the book to people who would never come to a bookstore or yeah. to a literary festival or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so let me wrap up with a, a handful of standard questions I ask all my guests. Uh, the, the first is, uh, is, is, in some sense, an encapsulation of everything we've been talking about up to now. Um, what one bit of advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, I think the best bit of advice I could give uh, to a younger Jamil is to say, you know, your life, it will change. Your circumstances will not stay the exact same um, the anger you feel, the frustration you feel, don't act on that because you may make decisions that will haunt you for the rest of your life. And if you have enough faith that things will change, then a short period of time, your life could look really different. Uh, just hold on. Um, and, 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 and you could be your worst enemy. So just stay out of your own way and let, let time go by long enough that you might see something different in yourself. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that um, in order to improve society, we had to organize more around the, uh, the, around the identities that we feel are the source of our oppression Mm. Um, so as a young black man, I, you know, organizing around my black identity was really important for me at one point because I thought that's how I'm going to fix the things that are unfair against black people is to, you know, you know, try to draw attention to black people and, and black politics and things like that. And I think what's changed is now I have a, a much stronger desire to focus my effort around, um, identities that are the source of inspiration and character building. And I think that things like race, for example, don't offer that to people. I mean, um, the things that might be a big part of your identity because of inequality are not necessarily the things that are going to help you make the world better. And I think that's uh, a lesson that that's taken me quite a bit of time to learn, but I'm, I'm, I'm gradually getting there. When are you most happy? I am most happy when I, um, hear a good song uh especially a song that meant something to me in a previous part of my life because i i find that music was often very therapeutic both in the worst times and the best times of my life so that that's usually so we're coming brings... back to rap music here 
sometimes rap, but actually a lot of it too is just like songs that like I heard my mom play, for example, that I mm. didn't ever really listen to, but I associate with like a good moment when I'm like, oh, I remember my mom when I was a kid, like took me to go watch like a wrestling match. Right. And it's like the songs that she would play in the car. Now I like hear and I'm like, oh, it makes me think of that, you know. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? I walk uh, a lot, as much as I possibly can. I listen to podcasts, <laughs> you know, when I walk, which is also good. And uh, Toronto yeah, is just... a great walking city, it's got to be said. Yeah. Uh, any favorite podcasts? Apart from The Road Home, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I listen to the Joe Rogan experience a lot. I think he's one of the best interviewers uh, of, our, of our generation. So. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, well, I, I watch a lot of American football and I think of it as a guilty pleasure because of, uh, I think the athletes are, uh, not paid very well and they get injured, uh, quite a bit. Um, and so I, I struggle with whether I actually should be a fan of it or not because, uh, I feel some tension over it, but I do, I do love it and I played it as a kid. So it has a special place in my heart. Yeah, in the age of uh, CFE, I know a lot of my uh, American friends are kind of having a rethink about their uh, their relationship with football. Yeah. Um, and finally, uh, Jamil, uh, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Probably the experience that's meant the most is just sort of learning how to be helpful to my younger sisters. I think it took me a while till I was in my 20s to really be responsible for them and to care about them the way they deserve. But that has sort of taught me about how to be responsible to others. And that's, that's probably the core element of an ethical life, I think. Well, Jamil Giovanni, uh, author, social entrepreneur, community organizer, thank you so much for taking the time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate the interview. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed this conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Marie Crabb, Peter Fitzsimmons, Michael Trail, and Dalton Conley. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcast. It really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life.